Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the future of Seattle and whether socialism might provide answers to some of our biggest problems. A new year arrived with ongoing challenges for the city of Seattle, among them the COVID-19 pandemic, intractable homelessness, widening wealth and housing gaps, and strains on business. A new mayor and a slightly more moderate city council suggested a new approach, but longtime council member Shama Sawant is emerging from her own election victory with a head of steam and solutions from a familiar socialist playbook that seeks to place working people, renters, and other disenfranchised Seattleites at the center of city policy. After narrowly defeating a widely watched recall attempt in December, Sawant called the result a progressive victory over big business influence. But the recall effort also affirmed how much of a polarizing figure she remains. In the wake of the recall, and with the city in the midst of continuing crises, we invited Councilmember Sawant to our monthly Northwest Newsmakers series to talk with me about how she's approaching legislating after the recall attempt and what path she proposes for our city. One thing to note here, Councilmember Sawant's audio is a little rough. I do encourage you to bear with it, though. There's some good stuff in here. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Councilmember Sawant, welcome to Northwest Newsmakers. Thank you for having me. Okay, so like I said, um, I want to talk about the future of the city, but I want to talk about the past a little bit as well. Um, you are the longest serving uh, Seattle City Council member. Uh, you started your term in 2014. Briefly, I'm wondering if you can share what you see as the biggest difference between the city when you came into the council and today. I think the victory that we had against the recall effort last year was um, the culmination in many ways of what we had demonstrated already in 2013 with our first city council victory. And then since then, we won two other elections and then, then we defeated the recall. So essentially, you can say that socialist politics have been able to win concretely four different elections, not to mention the historic $15 an hour minimum wage victory, the Amazon tax victory, and the unprecedented renters' rights that we have won using this sort of fighting worker-led approach, worker and renter-led approach. And so I think what we've seen through the November elections is what, if you are genuinely a progressive, if you are a worker who's looking for a city that becomes affordable and livable for people like yourself, then uh, what did November show in Seattle? November showed that woke, progressive, performative politics did not win, did not carry the day. And as a matter of fact, Lorena Gonzalez and Nikita Oliver lost their elections to very openly pro-corporate candidates. And instead, with everything stacked against us, getting an unprecedented December election, thanks to the state Supreme Court, the so-called liberal Supreme Court, we were able to defeat the recall despite everything stacked against us. That shows you that a fighting approach does work and that has been working. And ultimately, this whole year is going to be a year of labor struggles. And it is going to be, as you know, you alluded to how uh, it's polarizing. It's not that I am personally polarizing. 
what I stand for is a polarizing idea and, and it shows you the deep class divide in our system and that's going to continue to play out. So uh, we'll uh, get to the recall. I, I do want to talk about it a good deal. I, I am just wondering more of, uh, aside from the politics, just as you look at the city, and you know, um, you looked at the city in in 2014, and you saw a city with a lot of uh, a lot of problems and and a lot of promise. Um, and uh, and I'm just curious, just sort of as you look at the city, what what are the 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 problems that have diminished, um, and what are the ones that have increased in severity in your eyes? I mean, fundamentally, if I was to, you know, give an honest viewpoint on this, then uh, I'll have to say that ultimately this is still, we are still under a capitalist system, which is overwhelmingly not in favor of the interests of the majority. I mean, regardless of what your ideological viewpoint is, just look, just look, let's look at the facts. And the facts are that even since the pandemic, and the pandemic happened well after our first election victory. So, you know, what have we seen in the last eight years? One of the things we've seen is that housing has become less and less affordable for the majority. As a matter of fact, it is a it is an issue that is creating, you know, despite all the polarizing that you're talking about, it is an issue that is actually um, creating more unity among working people because even people with what used to be considered as a decent salary are hardly able to maintain a foothold in the city in this entire region and that problem has only gotten exacerbated because of the pandemic throughout the pandemic we saw the largest corporations the wealthiest continue to amass trillions of dollars in fortune while working people saw a crisis like never before so i think that is part of the change in this city as well so in terms of what has gotten better, what has gotten worse, I would say what is what is dramatically different in a positive, progressive direction is the overall consciousness. You know, the the idea that ordinary people can get organized, can get can fight back, and we can win. That has seen a complete shift. You know, when we were talking about these things in 2013 in our campaign, even the most well-meaning working people were skeptical about it because you know in our lifetimes we hadn't seen that kind of fight back and victory and since then not only have we seen the socialist victories through our office uh, in seattle we've seen the west virginia teachers struggle win and we've seen a debate a genuine debate really spring up around the nation and seattle is a microcosm of that of what is really the way forward if we want to head in a progressive direction but i'll just end on the question of polarizing because that's a crucial one i think the right has also made uh, uh, you know, dangerous gains since in, in, in the period of the last eight years. And that is genuinely scary and it is genuinely something that should concern us. But the question is, what is the best way to defeat the right is to build the left. Okay, so you, you mentioned the uh, the pandemic there and like certainly the pandemic has had a major, major influence on the city um, in, in the last couple of years. And early on, there was, you know, a good bit of chatter that this kind of shared emergency that we were living through or still living through would result in policy that served those in need better. Um, and, I, and I think that, that that contention has been tested. I'm curious uh, what you've seen in regards to that. Do you think that the pandemic has made us um, a, a, a better society that, that does more to take care of the people most in need or has it uh, reaffirmed um, uh, you know, doubts in the ability of, of our society to do that. 
I think it has done both, but, but which, which point you're looking at, I think it really depends on a major class divide in the sense that ordinary working people globally, not just in Seattle in the United States, but globally uh, really uh, demonstrated incredible shared uh, sort of, you know, a shared commitment to help each other out. The idea that we can all, that we are all in this together really got amplified, really got, came to the fore. You know, people know this instinctively, ordinary people know this instinctively, but it really came to the fore to the crisis of the pandemic because it, it was a shared crisis. What was not shared though, was the burdens of the crisis. And also, uh, as I said, even despite the pandemic, actually during the pandemic, and this is just an, uh, this is stunning indictment of the failures of capitalism that even during this unparalleled crisis, the rich got even richer than ever before. The investment by banks into fossil fuel infrastructure kept increasing in, in, in at record uh, levels. So all of this shows that you cannot look at what's happening in society in an, in an honest way uh, without a class lens. I mean, ultimately, who suffered in the crisis and who continues to suffer is very much the working class and the poor. And this is not it's not a, it's not a beating heart idea. It's a question of recognizing reality and then uh, trying to respond to it from a humane angle. I mean, if you're a human being and you're not outraged by what has happened, uh, then there's something wrong there. And so fundamentally, if we agree that we have to have a humane outlook, then that is, those are the facts to pay attention to. And just to make it very, very concrete, the city council, uh, city council members make six-figure salaries. I'm the only one who takes home the average worker's wage and donates the rest after taxes to a solidarity fund. So city council members make six-figure salaries. They're still sitting in the safety of their homes, comfortably doing Zoom meetings, you know, so that, that's their work. And at the same time, all eight Democrats on the city council in November voted in an attempt. They didn't succeed in that attempt, but ironically, thanks to Mayor Durkin, but they didn't succeed in, they had an attempt to end the meager $4 an hour hazard pay for our grocery workers who are among those who are on the front lines in this crisis. And these are the same workers that a survey recently showed us that are facing historic levels of homelessness and hunger. This is outrageous. We just saw days ago, Mayor Harrow uh, has decided to end the uh, eviction moratorium at a time that the pandemic is still going on and that fatality rates actually are as high as they have ever been at times during this uh, crisis. So no, it's not a shared sacrifice. It is not a shared crisis and we cannot talk about it in those terms. Uh, you're answering all my questions before me, before I can ask them, uh, council member. Um, I, I do want to talk about uh, about uh, the council. So let's zero in uh, on city politics here. Um, you know, of course, we had uh, a general election last fall. Um, we have a new mayor. Um, we we have a new council member. Um, you know, the the read on this is that it is that city leadership has uh, shifted uh, somewhat to the right. Uh, I know that you reject this kind of right-left dichotomy. Um, uh, I'm curious how you see the evolution of the council over the last year. I don't actually reject what you're saying. I mean, it is it is a fact that Mayor Harrell won. Mayor and Bruce Harrell uh, ran an openly pro-corporate, anti-poor, pro-police, you know, sort of fear-mongering campaign. There was nothing disguised about that. His Agenda is very clear. You know, as I said, his two main actions right away have been to expand the police budget, 
and uh, which is not going to address the public safety crisis, which we can talk about if you like, but also uh, to end the eviction moratorium at the end of this month. So these are actions by a corporate mayor. We saw Sarah Nelson defeating Nikita Oliver. So yes, this is a council that is uh, you know left to itself. That is, you know, if, if there was an, a complete absence of movements by ordinary people, it is moving to the right. In fact, I wouldn't call, even call it moderate. It is very obviously pro-corporate. We have four pro-corporate city council members and a four woke progressive Democrats, I would say, self-described progressive, and you have one socialist city council office. And so in the context of this, what, um, what, what outcomes we will have is not something that is, uh, I mean, I, I, it's, not, it's not preordained. You know, what will happen will depend on, again, it's a clash of forces. You know, if, if working people are able to prevail through building movements, then absolutely we can win despite the fact that things are stacked against us. But if we don't, then expect policymaking to move to the right. Yeah, I mean, this is interesting. You know, I, I think that you know, I've 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 watched you uh, legislate for the last eight years, um, and uh, and you have a, a very different strategy, I think, than than um, than most other city leaders. I mean, this you know this idea of a clash is really embodied in a lot of the ways that you uh, you approach your work. Um, but I do wonder if like how you approach when new leadership comes into uh, city hall. Do you um, have you had one-on-one -on -one conversations with uh, Mayor Harrell um, or um, or with Councilmember Nelson at all? I mean, do you is there sort of an introductory phase where you're having discussions with them and kind of understanding, you know, where they're standing on certain issues and if there are areas of um, of, of of common um, uh, of common effort that you can join them on? I've definitely had a very cordial conversation with Sarah Nelson. Uh, I've had a con cordial conversation, a series of conversations with uh, Alex Peterson. I've not had a chance to talk to Mayor Harold, but my office has talked to his office, and we are going to be talking very soon. But look, at the end of the day, what matters is um, actual outcomes for working people. And so nothing in this universe stops any council member from doing the right thing by working people. Like, I didn't tell Mayor Harrell to issue a diktat that the eviction moratorium is going to end when we know that nine out of 10 evictions end in homelessness, that evictions disproportionately hit black women, working class uh, led households, uh, working class women led households, uh, that half of the evictions are default evictions because people don't understand how to go to court and fight it. So uh, it's not like they are not privy to the facts. It's not like anybody's stopping them from doing it. This is what the, this, these are the choices they have made. So, so when any given politician makes a choice to, um, to, to represent the interests of corporate landlords or big business, then that's a choice they're making. Uh, I, am, I have made a choice to fight unambiguously for working people, and that is what I am going to continue to do. So I would really urge us not to continue to look at this from a personalized angle of who did you make a phone call or what. I mean, for that matter, I'll tell you that I am actually far more polite and cordial to them than they are to me. All the Democrats put together, I'm not singling any one Democrat out. They, they, none of them has a copyright on treating me really badly, actually. They do, they all do. But that is not the point. The, the, I, when, I, when I ran for office, I signed up for what I knew would be a clash with big business because capitalism itself is a, is a zero-sum system, you know? 
the Chamber of Commerce and big corporations gain at the at the expense of workers. So any politician who tells you that I'm trying to square the circle, I'm trying to get two sides to meet together, they're not being honest or they're completely uh, naive in, and, and have no understanding of how the system works. In reality, the interests of big business are diametrically opposed to the interests of the vast majority of people, including small businesses. And so what I'm doing that's different is being 100% honest, whether somebody's on my side or not, I'm being very honest. But when politicians, other politicians, Democrats say, well, I'm not like her, I'm trying to get everyone to unite. What do they really mean? They really mean that they're capitulating to big business interests while wanting working people to have illusions in them. That's what they're doing. Well, so I want to get to, to specific issues in a bit, but but let's let's move. Let's talk a little bit about the recall because I think that um, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit curious about how that has affected you and the way that you approach your your job. Of course, um, the recall election was in December. Uh, you came from behind, uh, which has uh, become a bit of a trademark with you uh, to to defeat that recall. And um, you know, I'm I'm just curious if. It, You've said that really the power, and I think that you've just said it here, the power that you have is uh, is in the movement, is in sort of your, your ability to mobilize people, right? And in this case, mobilizing your constituents to, um, to, to, to win a recall uh, election in, in a, a really like off time in the beginning, beginning of December, um, which was not a given. And I, I wonder if you've enter this new year feeling emboldened um, and that actually did the recall effort turn into just an opportunity for you to um, to mobilize and consolidate um, your uh, your your support and um, you know I mean in the last few weeks we've seen you um, uh, you know you've you've uh, accused your council colleagues of um, a, a performative progressivism, um, uh, which you, you just mentioned, and, and also uh, Mayor Harrell of uh, hypocrisy when it comes to the, the eviction moratorium. And I'm just, you know, I mean, you're coming out strong. Are you feeling like you have the, you know, did the recall effort actually embolden you, I guess is the question. That's a very good question. And um... I would like to answer it from the standpoint of working people's movements and not just me personally, because I never see this as a personal thing. Uh, but I, yeah, I think that's, that is accurate to say that we, the, the fact that working people were able to defeat this right wing big business back recall, despite virtually everything stacked against us, including, as I said, the collusion of the state Supreme Court, that should absolutely embolden us. It should not make us complacent uh, because we have to understand that this, first of all, this will be far from the last attack by big business, also by the right wing against our office in the next couple of years. Expect that there will be other types of attacks. It's a question of what they, what, what attacks succeed and not. So we should not take it as an act of God. We should absolutely fight back and through the recall, uh, through the defeat of the recall and through the other three election victories, we have shown that it is absolutely possible to have a fighting strategy where you are unapologetically fighting for working people, not attempting to curry big business, uh, the favor with big business or their political representatives, not trying to uh, ingratiate yourself with the Democratic Party establishment and yet win 
by mobilizing the rank and file. It is possible to do that. That should be an emboldening message. And I would draw out actually a larger um, sort of a larger lesson from that. It's not only about District 3 or, or just about Seattle. It's really about what is the strategy working people need going forward now that the pandemic especially has laid bare the failures of the system and also the inability and the betrayals of the Democratic Party. I mean, look, we, we talked about what's hap what happened in last November in Seattle, right? But we also have to talk about what's going to happen in November this year. And you don't have to take my word for it. Everyone from CNN to the New York Times are predicting a shellacking of the Democrats uh, in the midterms, primarily because of the failures and betrayals of the Biden administration, the failures of the Democratic Party to deliver on anything, including build back better. So I think that 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 dynamic is going to be reflected in Seattle also, you know, in a different way, obviously. It was already reflected in December, given that, as I said, the woke progressives failed to win their elections, whereas we were able to win instead. So absolutely, it should be emboldening to us. But as I said, it should not make us complacent because the right wing is still growing. And at the end of the day, it's not enough for me and a few people to understand that the fighting strategy works. It is important that renters and working people as a whole understand that. And I think that there is going to be a clarifying of that. You know, look at Starbucks workers, you know, nationwide, they are they are now fighting back. So I, um, you know, I, I just want to stay on, on the recall a little bit. I'm glad you mentioned the state Supreme Court. I, you know, I, I know that um, that in the lead up to the recall, you you had uh, you had you know accused the state supreme court of collusion with um, with uh, with Democrats to um, to I think to put the the issue on the ballot after the general election, and that's a pretty serious charge. And um, I I just wonder, you know, you. You are approaching this with um, with a great amount of um, of enthusiasm. You are um, you are doing whatever you can to really um, you know to get your um, to mobilize uh, uh, working people and renters. But when you um, when you throw out the idea that the state supreme court is colluding um, in order to uh, to get an an intended uh, political result, um, I mean that. I mean that's conspiracy theory, and isn't that? Well, it, it's not, it's not a conspiracy theory. I'm not accusing them of actually having a meeting to do this. What I'm saying is that politically, when I say collusion, what I mean is that politically speaking, when you have a system like capitalism, you have every institution of the state really having a certain kind of agenda. So. Uh, if you look at what the actual decision, I'm just looking at the decisions of the state Supreme Court and saying what the, what side they're on. I'm not, you know, I hope you understand that. So in other words, uh, the state Supreme Court uh, said that the recall against my office should go ahead. Okay. But they rejected the recall against Mayor Durkin, even though that recall charge was based on, under her direction, the police department deploying uh, just unprecedented amounts of tear gas and other weapons against peaceful protesters. Now, I don't know of a charge that is worthy of a recall election than that. I'm not against recall per se. I think that in, in any genuine democratic process to hold elected officials accountable, absolutely that should be in, in you know part of the strategy. 
But this was not a recall that was decided by ordinary people. This was the Supreme Court deciding that the recall against Durkin should not go ahead, but the recall against me should go ahead. The other kind of re, the other yeah, example yeah. of a recall. Let me just give you another example of a recall that the state Supreme Court rejected at the same time that they allowed the recall against me to go ahead. Thurston County Sheriff John Snazza refused to enforce the mask mandate during the pandemic on his officers, and the state Supreme Court decided that was not worthy of a recall. The state Supreme Court decided, for whatever reason, again, I'm not I'm not claiming to have knowledge that I don't have, but what I'm saying is look at the outcome. All the other recall rulings, you know, whether yes or no, the recall rulings by the state Supreme Court were delivered in a matter of weeks, whereas the ruling, very unusually, I, I don't know of any other example, to my knowledge, uh, was delivered months later, which is what was part of what allowed the recall campaign to put their election on the ballot in December in an uh, you know in just un unheard of December election. That is what I mean. So if you look at the actions taken by the Supreme Court, they are not actions by a fair Supreme Court. That's that's all I'm saying. Um, so there were uh, there were certainly people who organized the recall, but there were also people who voted in favor of the recall. And I guess um, you know these people are your constituents. Uh, what is your message to the people who voted to recall you? Well, I know that some people ended up voting, either not voting or voting for the recall because they were understandably, and this is not their fault, you know, not just not clear what it was about. It was a hard thing to understand because there wasn't an opposing candidate. You know, it's an unusual thing to have a recall election. Like, again, to my point, the Supreme Court is not okay the recall of many other elected officials that should have, that did deserve a recall election, but did not. And so it was an unusual thing for voters to grapple with. Uh, and then on top of that, you had just the onslaught of uh, mailers, you know, racist, sexist, completely misleading, misinformed, misinformative mailers from the recall campaigns. And they, and you know, this is this is what you get, you know, that is this is the democracy that's on offer under capitalism. That it doesn't mean that there are there are no democratic aspects. People have fought for these elections. You know, the Voting Rights Act was fought for. We fought for ordinary people to have the right to the vote, but it doesn't, it's just having those voting rights on paper doesn't help uh, by themselves. And this is what I mean. You, so uh, when you have a December election, when you have working people working just so hard to just put food on the table and pay their rent, they don't have the time to engage in, you know, most working people are not watching this show right now. They're not watching city council meetings because they simply don't have the time to do that. So I'm sure that a certain number of people, I don't think very many, uh, voted for the recall uh, mistakenly. In that case, I don't think it's it's a, it's a really a matter of discussion. It's really, it's a question of going to ordinary people and continuing to do what we have done, which is take our message of what we need to win in order to make people's lives better, including for rent control. That is how we won the Amazon tax. That is how we won $15 an hour. That is how we won all the renters' rights that we won as we were fighting against the recall last year. But there are, of course, uh, you know, there are people in the district and there are people nationwide who are working people, but, you know, they are wealthy people. They may have voted for the right wing, I, I mean, for the recall. I know that they did. I am not under any illusion that there is a difference of opinion. As I said, I am not, um, I'm not shy about admitting, yes, there is a polarization. It's a question of which side you're on. And at the end, and at the end of the day, you can win a lot of working people over to your message if you are actually willing to 
uh, help them understand that this is in danger. And I'll, I'll just end on this point. You know, a lot of people who voted ended up voting for Trump, they had supported Bernie Sanders. And it was a democratic establishment that crushed his campaign and ultimately paved the way for Trump to win. So we should not, we should not have this idea that, oh, well, you know, there's a certain section of our country that is just right wing. No, there are working people who are fed up with corporate politics and we have to have the left develop. So, so the message to, to some of the people who voted against you is that they were manipulated then and and to you know and that you're still working for them essentially well i mean what i've stood for and whom i'm working for has never changed as you were indicating earlier i mean right. i'm in my ninth year on the city council and if people are paying any attention to uh, the politics my office has stood for they can see that it has not budged whether as i said you may agree or disagree with any position i stand on uh, but you can never accuse me of lying or being dishonest. That's the one. This is the one city council office that does not do that kind of thing. Uh, so ultimately, yes, it is a question of reaching people on the issues that matter to them. And I can tell you, I mean, just to use rent control as an example. I mean, when we started first started talking about it in 2013, uh, there were a lot of people who didn't believe one that it was needed or that it could work or that you know that we could even win or whatever. Uh, but now the crisis itself, the crisis that, that we socialists didn't create this crisis, capitalism created the housing crisis, the real estate market and speculative real estate investment is what has created this crisis. It's on their doorstep. And so the crisis is so huge that I have never seen support for rent control and for expanding social housing like there is now in the last eight years. That is precisely why we were able to win the Amazon tax because the message of taxing the most profitable, profit, profiting billionaires in order to fund an expansion of social housing was just immensely popular. Let's talk about homelessness. Uh, when, when do you think uh, we can start actually uh, tackling the issue of homelessness? I mean, I uh, you know, if you had an ideal timeline, how quickly could we um, could we uh, really address it in a real way? And what is and what is the policy that's going to get us there? If you look at the incredible amount of statistical analysis that is being done about the homelessness crisis, and I don't just mean in Seattle, but nationwide and also globally, the the thing that emerges, I mean the 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 analysis shows, again, as I'm, I'm stressing this because it's not just my opinion, it is based in sociological and economic analysis that the one thing you need to do, firstly, I mean, it's obviously it's a complex thing, but the first thing that you need to do and the, the main thing that you need to do is to provide housing. That is, the, that is what the solution to this crisis hinges on. That's going to be the backbone of addressing the homelessness crisis. So you want to address the homelessness crisis, we've got to have affordable housing, high quality, affordable housing. And that is why I have been relentlessly talking about both rent control in order to make privately owned housing affordable because skyrocketing rents has been the bane of the existence of ordinary people. Uh, and also the expansion of social housing, which is publicly owned, high quality, affordable housing, which generates union labor as well, you know, so you know, because jobs and um, a, a livelihood is also part of why people lose homes. So ultimately, those are the kinds of progressive policies we are going to need. 
And again, I would I would urge people not to think about this as, oh, we just need a new creative Andrew Yang type of some technocratic idea in order to solve this crisis. No, what you need is courage and political will to point out that we need affordable housing. That's why we need rent control. We need an expansion of social housing. Funding social housing requires taxing big business. The Democrats are not going to do any of this. That's why we need a mass movement of ordinary people. That is what we need. Ultimately, if we don't have a mass uprising of ordinary people, we are not going to win any of those things. And again, as I said, you, you, sh you should not be shy to reuse ideas that have been proven successful. Building and organizing an independent mass movement works. We have shown that again and again and again. That is what we will need to win rent control and also an increase in the Amazon tax to fund an expansion of social housing. And um, another issue, and, and Mayor Harrell uh, in his uh, first State of the City address really uh, focused on homelessness and then public safety. And, uh, you know, he's prescribing, uh, you know, a tougher on crime approach, also uh, adding officers to the police force while also acknowledging that alternatives to traditional law enforcement are a part of the recipe as well. Um, what do you think we can do to address concerns around public safety in the city? Again, you want uh, to address public safety, let's have a scientific approach and what do the uh, various analyses tell us? Again, public safety is very much related to inequality in society. The more polarized and unequal a society is, the more you will start seeing these problems. And, and you know, let's let me clear about who the victims of increased problems in public safety are. I mean, whose cars are being broken into, whose homes are being broken into. It's ordinary people, working people, the smallest of businesses. The people who are the most vulnerable are the ones who are dealing with the fallout of this inequality. It's not the very rich who are dealing with it. It's ordinary people and small, the smallest and the most struggling of businesses are dealing with this. So ultimately, if you want to, again, address this, we have to look at this scientifically. And what we see is that uh, the best way of addressing public safety, really the only way of making a safe city and a safer society is to address the problems of inequality. And that includes, obviously, the housing crisis. The housing crisis is the main thing. If you address that, then it will have a huge positive outcome overall on the city in many different ways, including public safety. But let me tell you something. It's really rich for Mayor Harold to be talking about addressing homelessness at the same time that he has lifted the eviction moratorium. Again, you don't have to take my word for this as a socialist. Studies show that nine out of 10 evictions result in homelessness. Studies have also shown that the people who are hit the hardest from homeless from evictions are, as I said, working class and poor black women-led households. And uh, that studies also show that half of the evictions are default evictions, meaning the person is so vulnerable, that family is so vulnerable, they don't know how to go and fight in court. And so the eviction just happens because they have had no recourse in the first place. And it is very hard to address it. I mean, that is something that I've committed to ad address through my office to uh, end default evictions. And we are working on that with the Housing Justice Project and other organizations. But the point is that how are you taking the word, you mean not you, but you know, how, how is anyone taking the word of a mayoral administration who says all these nice sounding words. Again, as I said, there's lots of performative art going on in City Hall. 
oh, we need to address homelessness. We need to do this. We need to do that. How on earth are you claiming any honest way to address homelessness when in the middle of the worst crisis that people have faced and are continuing to face, which is the pandemic, you are ending the eviction moratorium when every single piece of data shows that that is going to be devastating and that is going to lead to a tsunami of evictions and that nine out of those 10 evictions are going to end in homelessness. All right, well, uh, council member, we're going to turn it over to the viewers now. So um, we've got some, some good questions from the folks who are watching uh, and we've got about, about 13 minutes uh, here. So um, let's, uh, let's dig in. I, you know, Sue's got a question that I think is at the root of um, of really your uh, of your politics and, and really what you do every day for your work and that, you know, is there a way that we can take socialist ideas and ideals and make them work in concert with capitalism? Or is, and I'm adding this, you know, is, or is capitalism antithetical to socialism, which is sort of my understanding of it? What's, what's your understanding of it? I think your understanding is pretty spot on, but just to explain a little bit, and I really appreciate that question, which is that, uh, it is possible to win reforms under capitalism, you know, so the system is the same, but you can improve things for working people. Uh, and that has been done again and again. In fact, today, life overall is far better than it was for most people 100 years ago. I'm not one of those. I'm not, a, I, I don't, I, as I said, I have a very, as a Marxist, I have a very scientific, and I, as an engineer myself, I have a scientific view on, on these things. And I, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, the good old days. No, the good old days weren't very good for children, women, most poor people. Um, we still have a long way to go. And in my view, it, it, that long way also has to involve separating from capitalism itself and having a new social, socialist society. But at the end of the day, yes, you can win reforms under capitalism. But I would say that it's important to remember a few things. One is every single reform, as small as it might be, has been won throughout the history, not just of capitalism, but of class society. Every single reform has been won because ordinary people, the people who are suffering under those regimes, decided to show indescribable courage and fought back, got organized and fought back, made incredible sacrifice. The, you know, the whole history of the union movement, labor movement, which is the which was the backbone of improving people's lives under capitalism in every country. That is that the history of the labor movement is littered with stories of self-sacrifice, heroism, even labor leaders giving up their lives, you know, Marxist, socialist, labor, militant labor leaders giving up in terms of their lives in order to build this movement. So don't ever get the idea that you can win these nice things under capitalism because of the largesse or some shift in conscience by the capitalists, by the bosses. That never works. In fact, they fight to the nail. Uh, against anything and then when they are forced to concede they will concede and then try to see the narrative by saying well we we are so nice starbucks executives are so nice they're now moving their workers to 15 dollars an hour no it's because they're afraid of the unionizing drive that is going on that's why they're trying to make these concessions and make the union drive go away which we should not let them do uh, but at the end of the day i will say and, and this is where you're you're dead right uh, mark that it's you you cannot have socialism and capitalism coexisting. That doesn't work because uh, of the simple reason of, you know, just it's a brutality of numbers. I often call it the brutality of data, which is that the wealth of billionaires, which is part and parcel of a system like capitalism, cannot coexist with fulfilling 
the needs of the billions of people. So in other words, if you want the billions of people to have a decent standard of living, that cannot happen while you have these billionaires hoarding trillions of dollars. It doesn't work that way because it's a zero-sum game. You know, that wealth came from impoverishing millions and billions of people. That's one thing. But the other thing, which is really the elephant in the room right now, is the climate catastrophe. If we don't solve the climate catastrophe, there is no livable planet for us at this moment. And that's not hyperbole. You know, climate scientists are telling us it is at our doorstep. So can the climate catastrophe be addressed on the basis of capitalism? No, it can't. So lots of, I mean, big, big issues that that you, you feel like um, you have uh, uh, solutions for and uh, your constituents do as well. Um, and uh, a lot of people who are, have been following your career. Uh, one of them, I think, is Paul, who's one of our viewers here. Um, he asks uh, if you would consider running for state office. And I guess I would add to that whether you view any um, higher office uh, in your political future here in the near term. Sure. You, you were talking about all these larger problems and, and very pressing problems right now. And, you know, e even though you're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a lot of work at the city council level, there's only so much you can do. What is your political future like? No, that's, that's, uh, that's uh, absolutely the, um, a very concerning point that you're bringing up that, you know, these are not problems that we can address at a city level. And in fact, not even only at a national level, you know, climate dealing with the climate crisis will require an international coordinated effort. Uh, and I take the question in that spirit. Uh, and I think it's, it's really important actually to point out also that this kind of politics, the kind of politics that we have demonstrated through our office, and I don't just mean me, you know, this, this has been a collective effort by many working people who have been part of all these movements. Uh, that is crucial that it shows up at the state legislature and also in US Congress, absolutely. So as far as furthering this kind of fighting approach and a sort of a rejection of this business as usual politics of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, uh, I absolutely want to see that go forward and I will do anything in my power to make it happen. Uh, I can't answer the question directly about whether I will run for a higher office or not because that is not how we approach those questions in Socialist Alternative. And I don't think working people should accept that kind of careerism where you know, somebody decides they are going to run. No, what we really need is a new party for working people where there will be genuine democratic structures in the party, you know, where the rank and file of the party can decide together through discussion and debate, through open discussion and debate, uh, who should run, what the campaign platform should be, how, what should the campaign strategy be, and all of that. That's how we ran all the campaigns. I mean, I did not become a candidate in the first place by deciding that I want to run like I would never have chosen this for myself, to be perfectly honest. Uh, but democratically, if we can decide who our candidates should be, do we have confidence in them for really fighting for working people? That is what we need. I, I mean, you know, this is urgent because we've, all, we've already seen that the establishment Democrats don't have a strategy at all. I mean, it's just epic failures. But also the squad, the progressive caucus of the Democratic Party, they, they have simply failed to win on anything that they said that they are supporting. And so what working people are seeing, especially Gen Z people are seeing this, that it is not enough to have a squad in Congress that occasionally tweets out about Medicare for all or whatever. You need somebody, uh, you, need, uh, you need an approach. It's not about a person, but an approach 
that will actually bring a fighting strategy to U.S. Congress and not see, not have politicians who see their work as, oh, what, what can I do by having individual conversations with Nancy Pelosi or, or Christian Cinema? No, that's not where it's at. You, you need Congress members who will turn around and say, we need mass rallies uh, in West Virginia and Arizona, in Washington, D.C., and bring that pressure from millions of people to bear on Congress. Hmm. Uh, so again, mobilization is, is the key, right? Um, Absolutely. And in, in do, fact, the labor, mo- labor movement has a role. I do have so to ask, just, though, you're, you're, so you're up for re-election in 2023. Are you going to run for re-election to the city council, do you think? Again, as I said, you know, what happens then will depend on what we feel are the most pressing needs of working people and what else is happening at that time as well. So absolutely, if that is the uh, the best way that we can serve the needs of working people, absolutely, we will do that. Um, so we're getting a few questions here that are they're really a follow-up to when we were talking about public safety during the, the previous uh, uh, portion. Um, and, and there, you know, your answer to public safety was that, you know, really uh, um, eliminating the, the, the inequality that we're seeing in our society through different measures. Um, but in the near term, uh, what can we do to address crime while like these larger changes are taking place? I mean, a number, you know, p- people, uh, some Seattleites are very concerned about the levels of, of crime that we're seeing right now. What, what's your, what's your near term sort of, uh, bridge that gets us to that longer term solution? I mean, I've, I would, again, just being honest and not, not just, uh, trying to stroke people's fears, you know, I, I, you, we have to resist looking at it in that way that, well, housing will happen when it happens, but right now, isn't there something we can do? I understand that it's tempting to think that way. And I understand, as I said before, it's ordinary people who are facing the brunt of the um, incidents that are happening, that are uh, making people feel less safe. I'm not saying that there's not reality to it, but what I am saying is that as tempting as it might be for some people, and I don't believe that as, as this is actually a popular position, but as tempting as it might be that, oh, well, if we increase the the budget of the police department, that will address it. Well, let me disabuse you of that notion. Again, based on data, you don't have to take my opinion for it. Uh, if you look at uh, the last many years, you know, last two decades, for example, certainly the last decade, this police department funds funds have gone increased disproportionately to the funds for other departments, okay? And uh, even despite the very um, large budget that the police department has had, it has had no positive effect on crime. I'm not, I'm not saying that it hasn't had any effect, but what I am saying is that the link that people want to see between increased police budgets and uh, a really enhanced um, sort of outcome for public safety, that is not how it works because the problems of public safety are not emerging from just these miscreants that need to be locked up by the police department. Yes, I mean, absolutely, there, there is real crime that is happening, but ultimately the biggest crime that is happening in our society is the inequality, is the lack of housing, is the fact that our homeless neighbors don't have anywhere to go. So if we want to address it, 
I would urge people genuinely, if you want to address this and you're not just fear mongering and engaging in poor bashing, then join me in fighting to increase the Amazon tax to expand affordable housing, demand that the mayor not the, um, uh, end the eviction moratorium. So, you know, most immediately I, I'm putting forward a legislation to extend the eviction moratorium for at least as long as the public health emergency exists. I mean, that is the single most urgent thing you can do. I mean, if you're asking what can we do today to prevent this crime from exacerbating, absolutely it is to prevent the eviction moratorium from being repealed because we know that for many people that will be the ticket to homelessness and that will lead to, lead to more problems in our city. All right, well, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time. Uh, Councilmember Sawant, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really enlightening conversation. I appreciate you, uh, you know, fighting through the technical difficulties uh, and, um, and giving us uh, some, um, some answers to the questions we've had. So thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the audience questions and thank you, Mark. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks to Councilmember Sawant for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future Crosscut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of Crosscut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to Crosscut Talks, you can do just that wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at Crosscut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com donate. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.